You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. It's easy enough to say when your friends are doing good things and your enemies bad things, but moral philosophy takes on the tasks of saying what makes an act a habit or even a lifetime better or worse than it might otherwise have been, and of suggesting the extent to which it matters whether the doer is a friend or foe. Greek moral philosophy in particular, which inherits from Sophocles, the warning to call no person happy until that person is dead, wonders what it would mean to call the dead happy. It might sound like a morbid thought, but Stephanie Semler's recent book, A Person as a Lifetime, explores notions of narrative, persistence, and continuity in Aristotle's thought. And careful attention to Nicomachean ethics and others of Aristotle's treatises leads a reader into some fascinating alternatives both to the overly cerebral accounts of personhood and to theories that tend to isolate acts from the long span of human life. Today, Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome her to the show. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Semler. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Very good. One of the core questions of this book is the relationship between practical and theoretical reason, and I'm just going to borrow Boethius's categories here. As we begin to explore the contours of practical wisdom, what does it mean that Sune must involve both habit and a theoretical grasp of human goods? Uh, that's a great question to start with. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Aristotle, especially in light of looking at other moral theories, um, particularly you know, if you're teaching, for example, an introductory class of philosophy, you would have just left Plato more than likely and, you know, uh, very likely gone into Aristotle is his, his capability to make room for the nuances of human life. Uh, and, and I think that that's the hallmark of Aristotelian both ethics and theory of action, which is that he acknowledges that there's things that we have, you know, sort of latent in us, you know, his famous uh, words that he says to us about habit, you know, that we, we become what we do. Uh, but also that there has to be a rational element to it. So I really believe that there's a kind of belief, I call it a deep belief, um, that we have that's formed in that, you know, that crucial habituating period. Um, and I think that's really the essence of this meaning, this particular meaning of Sofrasune. Um, so we can't, we can't really go after that full human life in the way Aristotle understands it without that theoretical grasp. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I, I realize that I've gotten this from reading lots of Wittgenstein is this notion that philosophy is primarily a descriptive practice, uh, that the aim of philosophy is to say how things are, not necessarily to say how things should pro progress. But I think this is a good corrective to that because you know, according to the account that you find in Aristotle, uh, the way that we understand really does shape the way that we exist. I mean, is that a fair reading of your claim here? Oh, certainly. I think it's uh, it's required to understand the project, the whole project of the book. And, and granted, I'm not doing uh, pure exegesis of Aristotle here. You know, I'm, I'm doing something creative. I'm mm -hmm. trying to use uh, the ethics to build the concept of person, um, mm -hmm. and, and hopefully one that we can use, too. <laughs> right, right. Well, let, let's go to that question of persons. I mean, the concept of a person, as you draw it from Aristotle and as you develop it yourself, of course, people are, quote, candidates for eudaimonia, close quote. Now, our listeners might remember from those introduction to philosophy classes we've been talking about that happiness is not a precise translation for this difficult term, but for the sake of those Certainly. who have forgotten, say a little bit about the place of eudaimonia in Aristotle's thought, and by the way, tell me if I'm misplacing the accent, and what, if anything, it has to do with the pleasant kind of life that we recent moderns call happiness. Sure, that's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, we're Americans, so we're probably going to mispronounce everything. <laughs> so I well. never worry about that. <laughs> I tell my students that all the time. Um, and certainly, of course, you know, we're not speaking, you know, from a Greek point of view in, in our linguistic uh, heritage. 
Um, I hope that the British mispronounce it worse than we do, but maybe not. <laughs> I, I think that's a safe uh, bet. I, I think there's a chance of that, yeah. Um, so the the way that Aristotle, you know, so the, the textbook explanation is that for Aristotle, happiness isn't something that you experience in any moment. It's it's the completed life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, just to foreshadow, one of the things that you're going to say where I talk a little bit about poetics, um, I, I have always been struck in Aristotle when the way that he speaks about it, not that he uses the concept of art, but it's always felt to me as though you finish your life as if you have finished a long project, like a great work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and, and to do that well, to finish your life well, is to be among the lucky few who get to die happy, who get to have posterity look back on them and say, you know, for Aristotle, of course, it said this man lived well. Well, and it's interesting that you say lucky enough, because this is definitely something that marks Aristotle as distinct from a lot of modern notions and maybe some of his rival notions in Greece, in the Greek city-states, is that he really does allow a place for fortune, for luck. Uh, I mean, if your life goes badly enough, I, I, honestly, I think Aristotle is just being a an honest observer and saying, we don't look at that life and say, boy, I wish I could have lived like that. Oh, certainly. It's almost, again, almost in the way that you appreciate great works of art. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, you know, you think, wow, you know, that's that's an achievement. That's and and of course that there's luck bound up with it. You know, excellence of body, for example, which he clearly tells us in uh, both, you know, both versions of the ethics. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's by that I mean the Comican and the Eutymian ethics. Uh, it, he, he really you know, says you have to be healthy and, and you have to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be big. You know, a small person is never beautiful for Aristotle. <laughs> um, I know, it's just really such a weird thing for, you know, particularly, you know, being Americans, we think, you know, well, that's beyond your control. You, know, you can't do anything about that. But Aristotle really thinks that that's a part of it. You have to be well off, uh, you know, fortunate that you don't have to work so much that you don't have time to enjoy pleasure and to do philosophy uh, mm-hmm. and to enjoy your friends. Those are the three elements of, of the fine. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I, I, I do think that there's, I, without a doubt, I think we bristle at it now when, when we hear Aristotle say that to us, particularly for feminists um, like myself, because, you know, what Aristotle would have been in his lifetime was, oh, wow, you were born a woman, tough luck for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we have to, to, what, well, at least what I'm trying to do insofar as my project is creative um, is to say, I think these are the concepts that Aristotle is laboring under. And my test is always, well, if we could raise Aristotle from the dead um, mm. today and, you know, give him a crash course in <laughs> 2,500 years of history, what, what, you know, what would he say about some of these things? And, uh, most feminists, along with myself, that are Aristotelians, are at least optimistic that he might change his mind. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I think it's interesting, too, that when we talk about you know this notion of eudaimonia, um, again, I you know the contrast that I always think of is sort of the martyr story, where the truly blessed person is the person who suffers and dies for the sake of the faith or for a cause or so on and so forth. Uh, but in those cases, I mean, it seems that even the way we narrate those stories, that person either passes into legendary fame or to an afterlife or something like that that eclipses the suffering. I mean, so it, it seems to me that Aristotle's insight doesn't go away even in those alternative ways of thinking about the good life. Is that fair enough? I think that's an interesting interpretation. Uh, I, I, I don't contemplate that um extra element, which certainly, you know, there's at least a thousand years of tradition of, you know, Christian philosophers mm-hmm. uh, reconciling Aristotle with the Christian tradition. But but I certainly think that his, the way that I've crafted this view anyway is elastic enough uh, that it could. So also, for example, I think that the way that this view of persons is put together, it's elastic enough that it could accommodate artificial intelligence or non-human intelligence. Hmm. 
um, two things that Aristotle himself would have never contemplated. Right, right. Well, I want to turn from uh, eudaimonia, one difficult Greek term, to another difficult Greek term <laughs> that, honestly, I didn't even know was difficult until I read your book, so thank you for that difficulty. <laughs> uh, but you parsed the term dunamis in ways that certainly got me thinking. You don't neglect the sense of dunamis as the source of movement or change, you know, the way that we normally think of, you know, dynamic power. But you add another range of meanings that could help our readers think in more complex ways about that concept. What is that alternative range of meanings that you see? And how might that help us to see dunamis as truly a part of any robust moral theory? Well, in a sense here, I'm, I'm as, and as I said, of course, uh, also in the book, it's primarily focused on ethics, uh, but I am also borrowing you know, from the rest of Aristotle's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of monstrous problems with that. You know, maybe there's some things he wrote, maybe some things are apocryphal. Um, but I'm just going to, you know, proceed from the assumption that if the scholars tell me he wrote it, then he wrote it. That's fair enough. Um, <laughs> it's a good thing we have classicists and linguists. <laughs> uh, but I think, uh, what, I guess here's what, what I'm thinking is that if we take Aristotle as a whole, um, and we understand in his physics and also in metaphysics that he understands dynamics to be a potentiality. Right? Just that word alone without necessarily having to package physical power into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so in, the, in the metaphor uh, that I use, it's not mine, actually. I think it's actually been sort of floating out um, in the Aristotle sphere for quite some years. Uh, that a person who speaks a language, so for example, suppose you and I could speak basic Greek with Aristotle, but we just remain silent, there's a kind of potentiality in us, there's a dynamic in us that's just not reaching actuality. Mm-hmm. And that's a different thing than the mere possibility, which we both now in fact have, which is that we can learn it and speak it. Um, oh, you may speak ancient Greek, <laughs> but I, I certainly don't. No, uh, I do not. I, <laughs> Uh, and that's that's a that's a more kind of remote type of potentiality. Um, so the one where you have the silent speaker is closer to the way we understand that you know sort of yet to be rolled out energy, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, on the physics model. But quite frankly, in, in the project I'm using, I need that more latent sense of dynamic mm-hmm. because. I define persons as, again, candidates for dying happy, for eudaimonia. And that means that you're not, not a person if you don't die happy, but you are a person if you could. Mm-hmm. But I want it to be elastic enough that it could include persons that we want to call persons now, which would include, say, um, you know, someone with a disability that may, you know, not be healthy throughout a whole lifetime, but still is a candidate for dying happy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and famously, I mean, that's one of the, I'll call it a deficiency, just, in, just being a historical chauvinist here, but I mean, that's one of the deficiencies <laughs> that in the Christian era and in the modern era that follows uh, people have found in in Plato and Aristotle is that they don't really have a place for people whose health fails. Uh, that's oh, something sorry. that renders someone subhuman in that system. And I do appreciate that you know this notion of dunamis as someone who could, uh, rather than someone who, or in addition to someone who can. I don't want to draw a binary there. It's an it's a more right. encompassing notion. Uh, really does allow us to be Aristotelians without declaring that our, you know, our friends whose health isn't the greatest have stopped being human. Oh, certainly. Or for that matter, for women or for slaves, you know, I mean, all those people, if, if we go by black letter Aristotle, so to speak, you know, there's, you're just, you're out of the running completely. You're, and of course it's a matter of luck, but, it's, you know, you're out of the running. And I think understanding this term of, this concept, excuse me, of potentiality uh, will help. Well, it, what it does is it allows me to build this concept of candidacy based mm-hmm. on that latent potentiality. Mm-hmm. 
let me ask you this as a, as a sort of a sidetrack. I mean, do you see your project here? Uh, because I, I really kind of uh, sensed this as I was reading as a post-Nietzschean reading of Aristotle as one that tries to overcome this notion that, you know, the modern era has been a sickness rather than a development? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think we can't do philosophy in a vacuum, you know, even when we want to. <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's certainly, that, that's certainly right. I mean, I can't, I can't say that my reading um, of, of antiquity generally isn't colored by Nietzsche. Um, mm-hmm. That's fair enough. But, but, fair I, enough. But, I, but I do think that I'm trying to understand what he gives us, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to say, you know, here's, here's this, you know, amazing thing that Aristotle created, um, and what can we do with it? How can we make it better? Um, and how can his, at least, you know, nascent concept of persons that he is working under uh, help us to understand personhood better, or and not even understand it better. Because I, I, I guess this is one of the things that I don't really come out and say because the books about Aristotle and not about my theory. But um, I'm working on you know another work that kind of follows this, where I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to articulate a theory. But you know, I really think that that personhood as a concept is something that we create. Um, so I, it's not really something that we discover exactly. Okay. I think there's things we discover about it, but um, and I think morally this is good news because if we if we create the concept of personhood, then we can make it better for moral reasons, mm-hmm. um, which is precisely what I think has happened. Say, for example, if you look at the civil rights movement um, in the 1960s, um, that that's that's a really considerable alteration to the cultural notion of personhood in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. That that's that's the platform upon which we're building, you know, even more civil rights, not just you know in the legal context, but also in the moral context as well. Okay, very good. Well, I want to talk about another particularity of human beings uh, that, again, I mean, you you draw from Aristotle, but you bring attention to it in the way that uh, really does, I mean, bring some light to the notion, and that's the the concept that the non-rational parts of the human being are, and I'll use your phrase here, reason responsive. Um, so, I mean, as you develop this d- picture of distinctively human existence, what dimension does this reason responsive character add to the picture? Uh, well, I can't lay claim to that. I think that was Sarah Brody's, but um, I-, I think it's dead on. I think it's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way that Aristotle understands. So, for example, if you take acrophia, so that's the weakness of will. Mm-hmm. Aristotle, and, and this is particularly one of the things that gives Aristotle a lot of power, because if you're Plato, for example, you only do something morally wrong because you're ignorant. Yes. Right? That's, that's Socratic eudaimonism. You can't, you can't know the good and not do the good for Plato. The mm-hmm. knowledge brings the, the right action with it. So if you fail morally, it's because you fell out of ignorance and not for some other reason. Right. And um, it requires a lot of backtracking and sort of ex post facto re-narrating. <laughs> you know, whatever happened there, he must have lost sight of what's truly good. Yeah, exactly right. If they say, oh, you were just making a mistake about what's good. So, you mm-hmm. know, if you're cheating on, on your taxes, it's because, you know, you think what's truly good is saving money as opposed to you know, contributing to society and following the law, which, mm-hmm. you know, for Plato certainly would uh, trump any, you know, trifling savings you might get. Oh, sure, sure, he sure. He has sure. no I, idea yeah. how trifling it would have been in our time. So I think what Aristotle, what gives him this incredible amount of explanatory power, um, and I think to, to date, I think he still has the best explanation of weakness mm-hmm. of will as, as we all experience it, which is just that, you know, the reason, the pure, the theoretical reasoning part of you um, just loses in the face of a desire. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not as though the desire is untouchable by reason. He, right, he, he right. says, you know, it, it, it will, it, it's not rational in and of itself, but it can be, um, maybe not commanded all the time, but it can be affected by reason. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's deeply, deeply true about the human condition. Right, right. And the more right. we reason, the better we do it, the better we get at it. And, and, and once again, I mean, I, I think that this bears out when we think about human practices. You know, I mean, something uh, that's on my mind because my kids' baseball season just ended is that, you know, the normal mammal response to a hard projectile coming at you at high speed <laughs> is to run away. But with discipline and with practice and with, you know, some notion of what it means to play baseball, you can teach an 11-year-old like my son to swing a bat at it rather than to run away from it. And, you know, that, 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 well, I mean, that right there, I mean, is, uh, something worth noting at the very least. Uh, uh, exactly correct. And if we, if, if we didn't have a way for reason to talk again to that, um, you know, what, what you call primal, like a primal response to something, mm-hmm. um, Aristotle would be just wrong. Um, but he recognizes that sometimes it could be so powerful, mm-hmm. um, Especially, you know, in extremists, that, you know, sometimes you're just not going to do the rational thing. Mm-hmm. True enough. Well, the, the name that Aristotle gives to that capacity that we're talking about to connect the act and an intermediate end and then the ultimate end is phrenesis. So mm-hmm. one, once again, let's talk about, let's talk about Greek words. And I, I, I realize <laughs> we do have listeners who are classicists and they're going to write me emails about how I'm butchering <laughs> these vowels. That's okay. I've been That's doing. Okay, I've, me too. <laughs> I, well, I've been butchering vowels on this show for about seven years now, so they're used to it. Uh, what does it mean for Aristotle to deliberate on the ends of our acts? Um, I think this is up for some interpretation. So, um, mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I with what I'm doing, I'm taking something of a pragmatic approach um, in terms of again the concept that I'm trying to come out with. I'm trying to create. Um, so some people might think it's unorthodox and I'm not trying to say that this is exactly what the historical Aristotle had in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm, what I'm arguing is that, uh, we can use this to build, um, a layered concept of what personhood is. Cause I think for Aristotle, I think he does, uh, sort of give us this picture of the human condition as having these different capacities, and, and I see them in, in sort of layers from the most sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, to the most basic. And that most basic um, is just um, choosing, you know, so we start with um, procuratus, which is just, you know, being able to, to choose a thing as opposed to um, what happens when you couple it with action. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think the picture that he gives us of um, how good or bad we are at doing that is also fairly accurate. Some people are really, really good at choosing goals, and they're not very good at getting to the goals. Not clever, right? Aristotle calls that that capacity cleverness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because that. I know I'm not going to pronounce it. No, that's all right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, of course, you know, cleverness is, is, but you can be clever and choose the wrong end morally. And so mm-hmm. so you, you can imagine someone who's really, really good um, at, you know, I don't know, fixing basketball games, right? But that wouldn't be something good to do. So these ends that you've chosen are for, but, but you, you're good at making the goals that you do, in fact, choose happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a person has to be able to have the capacity, again, even if she doesn't reach it in her lifetime, um, but what, what makes an, a particular agent, a person, is that potential to do that, to do that activity, that capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, another so, one so of the... Following Aristotle is Dayanima, right? When he thinks about um, how you parse out the animal from the plant, from the human, mm-hmm. it's in terms of capacities. Right, right. You know, the capacity to grow versus the capacity to sense versus the capacity to reason. Yeah, precisely. Very good. Well, one one of those characteristics of reason, and again, I like the focus on this in your book, is the distinction between rational and non-rational pleasure. Uh, This is something that, uh, you know, whether you're talking about a freshman who's just read, you know, her first dose of utilitarianism or someone (laughs) who, you know, simply likes to oversimplify things, 
they might think that pleasure is pleasure is pleasure and there's no real distinction among pleasures. Aristotle doesn't allow us to do that. So, I mean, how does that distinction between the rational and the non-rational pleasure fit into this picture of the good life? Uh, well, again, it's going to come back to capacity. Um, mm-hmm. so, the, so, again, the successful person, you know, in pursuit of the good life is going to choose the pleasures um, and, and I, I'm a little agnostic about this. I mean, you should probably tell it, but both of the introductory chapter and in this chapter, mm-hmm. um, I hedge my bets a little bit. And, and in part, I think it's because, um, again, you know, doing something that I hope will be useful, a, a concept of, of personhood that we could use. And mm-hmm. I don't think if we said, oh, well, only the people that have the capacity to lead to philosophical life are really persons. I mean, this doesn't seem particularly useful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so of, of, of the, the lives, three lives that Aristotle contemplated, uh, it seems to me that the life of philosophical contemplation is laudable, but also the life of, um, you know, the, the less philosophical, but still um, understanding good theoretically, you know, where you, you, you live a great life with your friends, and uh, but mm-hmm. you moderate your pleasure. Um, I, I think that that's more useful to us, that that's also on the table for personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so a person has to have the capacity to understand pleasure, to choose among pleasures, um, and even if they don't choose well among pleasures, they have to have the capability to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's what I'm trying to captures that latent um, capability. Right, right. I mean, to just to run with that point for a bit, I mean, uh, to say that someone cho- chose badly among pleasures uh, assumes that they could have chosen otherwise, I, I would think. You're exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Whereas, uh, so you know, I mean... You're, you're not, not a person if you fail. Mm-hmm. It's just, so, but if, if, you di- if you didn't at least have the very latent uh, potentiality to choose among pleasures. So, for example, suppose you had a person with um, a developmental disability mm-hmm. who um, maybe can't really discern the difference between, you know, uh, gustatory pleasure and why that, you know, why studying is better than mm-hmm. eating, for example. Um, the the picture I'm trying to to create here is that we can use Aristotle theory to still recognize that individual as a person mm-hmm. because, but for, you know, whatever their condition is, they would have been able to make this particular rational distinction. Right. So they right. don't because they're being prevented by basically an illness or an injury, but they would be able to do so otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then again, that distinction uh, persists between the person who lacks a capacity on one hand, and then on the other hand, the subhuman animal, right? So I mean, we don't talk about exactly right. We don't talk about fire ants being badly behaved. They are just, you know, inherently and naturally evil, uh, and they can't do otherwise. Uh, I've lived in the <laughs> South for 20 years. I've I've grown to uh, hate fire ants uh, with a hatred that a Christian shouldn't maintain, but I do. Um, but you know. The point here is that, you know, again, in this, you know, Aristotelian speculation that you're doing. So, again, as you said earlier, you're not simply uh, reproducing Aristotle here, but you're taking Aristotle's project and running with it. Uh, the, the distinction that we see in De Anima between, you know, the non-human animals and the human animals persists even when life conditions make those, you know, capacities latent rather than patent. Is that fair enough? I think that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And okay. that allows, that elastic concept of dynamic allows me to be able to create that concept in that way. Okay, very good. Well, one, one fascinating move that you make at the end of that chapter on pleasure and phrenesis is that you claim that moral conflict comes not from battles between moral reasoning on one side and mere impulse on the other side, but you actually have a battle between differing moral syllogisms. 
So tell our li- listeners how that account of moral conflict relates to our earlier conversations about moral deliberation. Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, this is uh, a uh, really, I think, a thorny area in Aristotle, and I think it's really, really open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of, part of what inspires me here is that, again, I think it's more useful, um, but I really think this is what he means. <laughs> so in okay. this case, I, I am actually arguing that I think this is this is what he means. And, well, I'll, and I'll, I'll pause right here and just say that I disagree. <laughs> I think that you have taken a step beyond Aristotle, but I, but I will grant <laughs> that you are being extraordinarily charitable here. So go ahead. <laughs> well, and that's 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 certainly um, endemic to you know what I'm trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, but, but let me, I guess, uh, what, I, what I think is happening, particularly when he talks about weakness of will, isn't that you have persons who are, you know, sort of normal, you know, phrenesis machines that are, you know, thinking through uh, what the good ends are and then that's what they want to do. And then all of a sudden they're just attacked by this passion. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that certainly happens. There's no question about it. And I think Aristotle recognizes that there's that capacity in it. But when it's a matter of habit, and so, so if you really are an Ocratic, what's wrong with you is that you weren't habituated properly. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, you'll, you'll probably got sick of my food analogy, but you did, I, I analogize this to food all the time um, because I think that there's something deeply similar in the way Aristotle thinks about moral situation and the way we now think about food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you probably know people who are, you know, trying to raise their young children on, uh, you know, like no processed foods and trying to make them from a very young age appreciate foods the way that they come out of the earth, you know, and these very extremely disciplined people that are trying to I've, do that. I've heard of some um, people. I've never actually met any. <laughs> oh, I, I know a few people that work at it really hard. Those are kids eat Cheetos at school. But, um. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know, like, you know what happens then, but um, I haven't. I myself have not tried to do this, but um, uh, but I think it, so. If you grow up eating, and the problem with processed food is that it's designed only to be delicious. It's not designed to help your body. Um, but, but if you grow up and you like processed food. When you go back to oatmeal and broccoli as an adult, you know, I mean, you're being encratic. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to eat. But mm-hmm. what you really desire is a bad. And that's what, like what happens when you, have, when you have a poor moral upbringing, is that you, you want the bad because mm-hmm. you've been habituated to like it. Even if you know, even if you later in life, you know, or through the process of education or something, is you can be taught well and be habituated badly. Um, I mean, Aristotle thinks that a good parent wouldn't do that, but it, it certainly, you know, that's kind of what happens to the strong and to the weak characters. Mm-hmm. They, they both, the conflict is between a desiderative stage and what they know theoretically to be the right thing to do. But when you're thinking about what you want, that's the bad when you're desiring the bad. You're also reasoning about that. You're also mm-hmm. reasoning about how to get it. And so that's why I see it more as a conflict between syllogisms, uh, because you have one, you know, sort of course of action in your mind and another course of action in your mind. Yeah, do you give in to a less dead rational state when you give in? Absolutely. There's, there's no question about that. That Aristotle thinks that reason loses the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, when at first, uh, but it's not—it's it, not just this completely unbridled raw passion. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think even if even if that is what Aristotle thinks, um, I think it's more useful to think about it this way because that's much more like what we experience. Right, right. And it's interesting. I, I wasn't even thinking of that constellation of moral phenomena, although I certainly grant that. But I was thinking more along the lines of something like, and I'll admit this is an oversimplified version of Martin versus Malcolm, you know, the <laughs> idea that, you know, in the face of injustice, cultural, political, social injustice, 
uh, is the right response to meet that injustice with, you know, love and with, you know, nonviolent resistance and so on and so forth? Or is it to take up arms, assert personhood, uh, and to resist by any means possible? Now, I've read my James Cone. I realize that, you know, the two overlap a whole lot more than that. But, you know, (laughs) just to use that as an example, you know, it, it strikes me that, you know, Aristotle would likely look at those two responses and say that one of them is simply acrotic rather than you have two different sets of moral syllogisms going on. Did you have that kind of conflict in mind when you wrote that part as well, or was it mainly keeping with the, you know, the analogy of the bad upbringing that you talked about? Uh, that's a, that's a really, really great question. Um, as, as I'm, what, what I'm doing in the book is I'm trying to come up for the explanations as, because again, right. Even if we fail at dying happy, even if mm-hmm. we fail at managing to, you know, live excellently for most of our lives, this is probably most of us, um, a strong character uh, is still potentially a person. Right? Maybe mm-hmm. not a you diamond, but, but potentially a per- I mean, still a person. Um, so I'm thinking definitely in the much more mundane moral realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about it, like the great, you know, bulk of our moral failings are fairly mundane. <laughs> oh, certainly, um, certainly. Uh, so, and I think that the, the, kind of case that you're talking about is more challenging um, mm-hmm. and, and probably would lend itself to something more like um, a, a less than a less rational response than what I'm thinking about in the mundane cases. Mm-hmm. But in the mundane cases, you have the chance to reason. Um, and, and, and worse yet, you know, in the mundane cases, we have a tendency to continue to do it because there's all things just an, an outgrowth of your character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in a case like that, where you know you have to decide how it is that you're going to respond to, let's say, very great injustice or something, um, I think that's a much more complicated problem. And, and to be quite honest, you know, it's something that I think we would need to bring elements of politics into, mm-hmm. uh, because this is just like the first installation as I'm thinking it through. Because Aristotle thinks, well, the whole reason, well, I shouldn't say Aristotle thinks this is. Um, uh, you know, like a Alistair McIntyre kind of claim, which is that the the purpose of ethics is to to understand what we are in political life, mm-hmm. you know, what that unit of personhood is now in the political in the political realm. Um, so I I would have to say that in in a case like that, there's something definitely more going on than mm-hmm. the picture of accuracy that I that I'm presenting here. Okay, um, fair enough. A uh, couple things for our listeners. First, I want you to note that I was not the first to bring up Alistair McIntyre. Uh, <laughs> uh, but second of all, I, th- I think it's fascinating that, um, you know, that connection that you nodded to earlier, and we're going to talk about it at some length later, uh, between the politics and the poetics. Uh, I always wondered whether the, I guess, the Aristotelian system would be different if he had focused more on Sophocles' play Antigone and less on Oedipus Tyrannus. <laughs> because there, I mean, you genuinely have to deal with, first of all, a woman who's the real moral agent of the play. Uh, yes, yes. But, but in addition to that, uh, a play in which it's never really clear whether Antigone is right or Creon is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of unitary notion of what is good kind of disintegrates in that third play in that trilogy in a way that it stays for the most part intact in the first. Oh, definitely. I, I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I don't think he could have written what he wrote in poetic. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would, it would have been, uh, well, because I mean, just even the concept of hero, I think would have been so problematic for him just because of Antigone for one, but, mm-hmm. uh, Okay. The the role of the agent in the dramatic device mm-hmm. isn't really fitting, you know, what it is that, that he's doing. We can apply it to Antigone mm-hmm. after the fact, but I'm not sure he could have crafted it that way. So right. That's a really, right. really interesting question. 
Well, I'm going to leave that question there for now (laughs) because I I do want to talk about some other parts of your book because one of the really, really good parts of the book is your section on friendship and Aristotle. We're talking about books eight and nine of the Nicomachean ethics as well as, as parts of, you know, the rhetoric and so on and so forth. But the way that Aristotle presents friendship to be a friend is mainly to be a benefactor. Um, let, let me ask you this, because I was curious when I read it, and I realized that my, my background isn't strong enough to know. Is that notion of friendship more a restatement of 4th century Athenian assumptions, or a challenge to those same assumptions? Um, I'm, I'm told by my reviewers and other people that it's more of a challenge than a restatement. Okay. Um, and I think, um, again, this is trying to see if I could put these thoughts in the correct order. Um, One of the things that's required for a concept of personhood, uh, so this is kind of what I'm thinking about in the background is I'm creating uh, the the next layer, the next capacity that's required Mm -hmm. for personhood, um, which is the ability to form uh, what Aristotle thinks is the true, the fine friendship, which is the friendship of the mind, the friendship of intellectual equals. Um, because I, I think the intuition here that the teaching moment for us to take from Aristotle is that without a community, without others, mm-hmm. personhood doesn't make any sense, or, or we wouldn't even be talking about it, that, that persons occur in a natural environment mm-hmm. and that that natural environment is, you know, among others. And for Aristotle particularly, um, the best way to do that is this, you know, this form of friendship that he, that he praises so highly. Mm-hmm. So again, to use the concept of capacity, mm-hmm. a person um, can be defined as having the capacity to engage in a relationship with another person. Um, and being a benefactor is absolutely part of it, but it's also partially being a beneficiary as well. Mm-hmm. So that person is the mirror to you. That, that person allows you to project your immediate uh, practical reasoning in a way that you would only for yourself outside of yourself, mm-hmm. allowing for that moral growth. Um, right. Well, so it's interesting. That, that's that's oh, what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, it's interesting because when I think about it on a, a historical line, um, you know, when Christianity inherits, you know, Aristotle, uh, you know, they really have to go out of their way to sort of establish a spiritual equality among persons mm-hmm. so that friendship is possible. And then really when the Enlightenment inherits that, you know, they sort of assert a political or legal equality of persons. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, as as a step even beyond that, if you will, I think your account of things uh, allows people to be provisionally equal to each other, even if in other moments they're not. And again, it, it's that notion of the uh, the latent dunamis that we've been talking about through this whole conversation. I, I think that really is your contribution to this conversation, because it really does allow you to go places that the text on a basic subject and verb level doesn't easily let you go. That's certainly true, right. Um, so, for example, uh, suppose you have someone who is can't live the life of philosophical contemplation because they have to work a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for luck, right, had, had that person um, had the ability to... Uh, Spend more, you know, spend more time in leisure um, and have the right kind of education to be able to do that kind of philosophical contemplation, mm-hmm. uh, the, the potentiality is there to form those friendships. Um, now, personally, I'd go a step further than Aristotle, and I would argue that people who don't live the life of philosophy actually do form friendships like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they take a lot of different forms, um, even if they don't realize that that's what that friendship is. Um, mm-hmm. And not everybody is lucky enough to be able to cultivate friendships like that, or maybe not very many. 
Um, although, of course, Aristotle thinks you can't have very many friends like that. Anyway, he thinks that that's going to be um, a very, very, very small uh, number of people that you'd be able to, to have that particular connection with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, and I suppose this is, you know, just cultural context in my case and um, thinking about people that I know who are not, uh, you know, contemplators, um, that, that I, I still believe that they form friendships that are not too far off from what Aristotle's talking about mm-hmm. um, in the best friendships. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I, and I, th- I think that on that level, I mean, I think that this account, uh, and, I, and first of all, I'm glad that I've got you saying that you're taking a step beyond Aristotle. That was one of my projects for this interview. Uh, but um, I, I think that those moments that people often like to point to when they point to, you know, the working person teaching a life lesson to the ivory tower intellectual, I think that your account allows for those moments to happen without making that universal in a way that oversimplifies it the other direction. And I think that's valuable. Yeah, that was just a, which then is, is a serious concern. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to give you some latitude for this next little bit because there is an ongoing debate among, you know, Aristotle scholars and philosophers more generally about whether Aristotle considers the contemplative life or the political life to be the mm-hmm. height of human excellence. Uh, you don't have to give us footnotes here, but you can if you want to, because, <laughs> you know, I want to offer you that liberty. But talk a little bit about the life of action and the life of contemplation as it manifests in Aristotle. Uh, you definitely come down on one side of this dis- dispute, and I'd like for you to give our listeners your case for coming down there. <laughs> well, uh, again, I am doing something that I want to be able to use in, in real life, uh, so mm-hmm. a concept of personhood that, that, that real people like you and I and the listeners could use. Uh, so this takes me away from kind of, I guess, contemplation orthodoxy, if, if, if you will, mm-hmm. um, because if, if, if I were to reason from that, uh, point of view, I suppose I could make an argument that uh, everyone has the potential for the less contemplation, but I guess what bothers me about it is that it makes the group of people who could reach Eudaimonia much smaller even than it already is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also I also think that, and of course I'm interpreting the political life relatively broadly as well too, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be doing politics. It means that you're involved in your community. Right. In the modern sense. Um, yeah. In the modern sense, right. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it would have been, the, the size and shape of that would have been very different um, mm-hmm. for the ancients in a way that I think we may not even really be able to understand, quite frankly. Right. Um, so so, so I, I have, I guess, a practical argument and a moral argument. And my moral argument is that in, insofar as we're crafting, or if I'm crafting anyway, a concept of persons, the, the outcome is better if more of us can participate and more of us mm-hmm. can can be the exemplar. And so that that's why I want to be. I, I guess it's just a a desire to be inclusive. Um, although you know, given the text, if I were being a uh, pure textualist, it's very easy to be persuaded that he really means a life of contemplation and, um, you know, that that's the best life, that's the only life that's worth pursuing, and, you know, and that's that. Um, so I don't know if that's exactly the answer you're looking for, but uh, again, I, I mean, I, I come right out at the outset and say, you know, I'm not telling you what Aristotle himself thought. I'm trying to use these great constructs that he gives us in the ethics and and maybe do something a little bit more Mm -hmm. well again to take a little bit of a sidetrack i mean um i know that i've encountered uh in several circles you know people who would discount aristotle's entire project because of his very situated views on women on slavery on you know this or that thing that we moderns rightly find offensive um, talk a little bit about 
your own reasons for wanting to appropriate those structures that you just talked about, uh, even as you self-identify as feminist, as do I. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really difficult. I, I think this is the problem of um, applying the principle of charity, I suppose, where you know you you try to give an historical figure the best possible interpretation. Mm-hmm. given that you know that they were surrounded by uh, a cultural environment that, you know, we find abhorrent. Um, and th- that's certainly true about the ancient Greeks. I mean, this is true of Plato as well. I mean, you just are just not interested in, you know, egalitarianism. No, um, not at all. So... I guess I guess here's the way that that I like to think about. It. I, I, I use this in my classes a lot, which is mm-hmm. if I could raise philosopher X from the dead mm-hmm. and give him a crash course in recent moral development and jurisprudence, um, you yeah. know, what conclusion is she going to come to? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I really think that Aristotle, being the you know, I, I think it, it'd be harder to persuade Plato, for example, of of our egalitarian values that that they're worthwhile. Um, but Aristotle's a pretty reasonable guy, and I think if if he had the chance to see, for example, some of his empirical claims disproven, mm-hmm. which of course has happened, um, you know, so for example, the idea that he had that, you know, the female body was only the vessel that didn't contribute to um, the production of the child, you know, that mm-hmm. type of thing. If, if we could sit him down and just say, well, here's how it really happens. <laughs> you know, right, behold the microscope. Might, Exactly, exactly. I think he would change his view. I think he's he's informed by what he observes. Mm-hmm. And one of his handicaps that we have to look at if we apply the principle of charity is to say, you know, he just he didn't have in a way the luck that we have, which is to have two thousand more years of scientific inquiry and you know, the benefit of the scientific method and mm-hmm. um, you know uh, 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 placing more of a value on egalitarianism because we discovered that actually people can overcome their circumstances, you know, and, and still go on to do great things. So, um, so that's my hope. I, I think that's, that's why I think it's um, possible. Why I think it's worthwhile is um, two things really. One is that when Aristotle's right, he's so right, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it, and like you were saying with that descriptive part of philosophy that Wittgenstein talked about, which is, you know, it, you, you recognize the truth in it as you're reading it. And say, yes, that's exactly, you know, what that part of the human experience is. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what's so right is also really useful. Um, and I think one, going back also to one of the things that you had mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, which is uh, we have these powerful ethical theories. You know, we have Kantian deontology, we have utilitarianism, and, mm-hmm. you know, their, their progeny, uh, which are very, very powerful, but there's certain spheres of action that they don't do particularly well in, and mm-hmm. I think a virtue ethics approach is better. I, I am something of a, of a moral pluralist, so I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea that we could use different uh, moral theories and different moral orientations to solve different problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that the kinds of problems that we're talking about with Aristotle probably not going to be on when we're reasoning about what happens with millions and billions of people. Right? Utilitarianism is a lot better for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it is very, very good with understanding, you know, why people behave in the way that they do, um, and particularly, you know, accuracy, because that's, you know, we all do that every day. So I think that gives mm-hmm. us a pretty good insight to that. Very good. Well, we've been hinting at it the, the whole conversation here, so I want to turn explicitly to the connection between the moral agent of the Nicomachean ethics and the tragic protagonist of the poetics. You know, we've talked about the strong parallels there. Um, to what extent, I mean, is Aristotle a dramatic philosopher? To what extent is his ethical theory, uh, you know, an explanation of human life in terms of drama? Um, well, I mean, he's certainly, what he's doing in poetics, without a doubt, you know, makes him one of the greatest aestheticians of all time. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, nobody, nobody studies theater without having to read 
Aristotle. <laughs> you have to, you have mm-hmm. to learn the basic Aristotelian theater, uh, theory of, of, you know, what makes that particular kind of artwork great. Um, so I, I wanted to be pretty careful there because I, I don't think that that's what he's doing in ethics. I don't think he's saying, oh, you know, look, this is where we're, you know, living our lives as artworks. Um, it would be, I mean, I think there's the potential for us to create that from what Aristotle gives us. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, with the, the concept of the person itself being the whole lifetime, being that whole lifelong project that you create, um, mm-hmm. th- there's, there's definitely an aesthetic dimension in the way that I'm reading it. Uh, so, so when I try to tie some of the threads of similarity between what he does in uh, poetic and what he does in the ethics, I'm trying to reinforce how this idea of person can be used in themes because I think he gives us something like it in microcosm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think he's deliberately doing it, I guess. Um, but but it's, it's a, I guess what I'm saying is that his, his dramatic theory is a good model to understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. On the other hand, he certainly but, borrows liberally from the tragedy to talk about ethics. I mean, I, I still remember the, doubt, yeah. the, the first time I, I taught uh, Oedipus Tyrannus after I had read Nicomachean Ethics and I got to that haunting last line. I said, oh my gosh, that's where Aristotle got that? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, here I thought Aristotle had invented this sentiment and I was just so impressed and I was ready to, <laughs> you know, join Dante and sing the praises of the greatest of all who know. And then I thought, oh, he got it from Sophocles. Okay. <laughs> it's always it's always somebody else working in the background. <laughs> oh so, man, is it ever? I it well, and then of course Aristotle I mean, invented so myself that it's not a reasonable conclusion to draw. Oh sure, sure, sure. No, 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 no. It's it's nothing against Aristotle. It's just my own uh, young ignorance. I, <laughs> I I I thought I had discovered an original thought until I went back and read the play that I was supposed to pay attention to as a high schooler. <laughs> right. Well, and actually, that's actually an artifact of ours. Like, there's almost kind of a, a, a almost a reverse charity that we have to give ourselves, which is that, um, and this is becoming, I'm sure that as you know from your teaching, it's becoming more and more so every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, those works are much less a part of the vernacular mm-hmm. for us than than they would have been for Aristotle. I mean, that that was the the, the moral language that he was speaking. Oh, sure, sure. And I'm an English professor. uh, And I mean, I remember when I taught the first iteration of my, you know, upper division European literature class, uh, you know, I I would pose questions to the class like, who here has read Oedipus Tyrannus? Who here has read the (laughs) Iliad? Who here has read this? And I mean, I, I, I was shocked that, you know, kids these days, as I start to sound like a grumpy old man, uh, you know what? We're not familiar with these texts that I assumed were just sort of part of everyone's sure, yeah. teenage years. Uh, so Definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, as we have reinvented the English major at you know my college, uh, at least part of what we are doing now is you know bringing some of those old Greek and Roman and medieval texts uh, into the earlier stages of the major because we can't assume that students are bringing them forward from high school anymore. That's right. Oh, what's that? that's absolutely correct. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, By the time I get students, I'm really happy if they've seen the Matrix. That's usually <laughs> <laughs> and even then, I've had entire classes full of students who haven't seen it. So. Oh, goodness. Yes, yes. I've, I've had that experience, to be sure, when I, I, I make a passing reference to taking the blue pill and I get blue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> Well, Dr. Semler, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about Aristotle, human existence, morality, or anything else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head for the door? Well, thank you so much for this opportunity, first of all, to uh, to do this podcast with you. Uh, I have to say this is the first podcast I've ever done, so uh, this is an absolute first for me. Uh, I, I I hope that um, predominantly, I guess I'll, I'll make a case for the principle of charity in my direction too, even if you disagree with me about what 
historical Aristotle is saying, um, or even, you know, a more broad interpretation of Aristotle in the school, and you know, what, what the doctrine of Aristotle is. Um, I, I, what my, my entire goal here is to try to create um, theories of personhood that make our lives better, that, that have a, a normatively positive charge. And, um, and I think that there's much in Aristotle, despite, you know, all of the, um, you know, sort of handicaps, you might say, historically that he might have, um, that will allow us to create that. Even if we have to take a leap here and there, which I, I certainly, as you know, I'm not afraid of doing, um, the, 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 the fundamental insights behind it, I think, are so important and, and could be used in a robust theory of person. Uh, and so that, that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is the only theory of persons. I'm just suggesting that this is a theory of persons um, that maybe we can evaluate among others and think through to ourselves, well, what, what makes the most moral sense? I like it for its potential for inclusivity, which is one of the things that um, I think is important in it, uh, a theory of persons. Dr. Semler, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Listeners, the book is A Person as a Lifetime, an Aristotelian Account of Persons. You can find it from Lexington Books, and there will be a link to that book in the show notes. I want to thank you for downloading and for joining us for this conversation. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.